looking to the seventh chapter of Matthew's gospel and planning to read for you verses 15 through the end of the chapter, our last look at this several-month-long series on the Sermon on the Mount, hoping to go forward from here to continue in the gospel of Matthew, but probably not quite so intensively with every paragraph or text as we've done with this sermon. While you're finding that chapter, I just tell you a quick little anecdote I think that's interesting. I think preachers need to be careful to acknowledge where they get help from. You know, sometimes you're studying in a commentary and somebody has the the thing outlined perfectly and you really ought to say, well, I benefited from Mr. Spurgeon's outline or whatever. Uh, got got the uh, crystallization of things in an unusual way this week. It was a very busy week for me and I really didn't get to work on the sermon at at all directly until Friday morning. But our children's bulletin gets done a little earlier in the week. And our new Christian education secretary is talking with me, okay, what's the sermon? Because she shapes it and shapes some things for the children. If you have the children's bulletin there, you could take a look at it. But uh, not all of you have it, I realize. But uh, she's doing a great job with that. And she said, well, what's it about? And I kind of fed her what I thought the points were. They were really just you know, kind of all over in my brain, not reduced to paper. And so she did her job, and I picked up the children's bulletin on Friday morning, and I said, that's it. There's the outline. So thank you, Heidi. You're doing a great job. Give her credit. And that's as far as I'm going to embarrass her. Matthew, chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. Jesus says, watch out. For false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the Word of God. If you were ever foolish enough to store substances like 
rat poison or caustic drain cleaner in your medicine cabinet. On the same shelf where you might have good things like aspirin and cough medicine. I certainly hope you would be able to be aware of the difference in containers and labeling so that there would never be confusion of you taking deadly poison in place of good medication. Strange as it may seem, under the wide umbrella of nominal Christianity, there are messages that are advertised as being something to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ that really are in every way almost as different when you get beneath them and see what's going on, as different as aspirin is from arsenic. And yet there are many people that don't seem to know the difference. Just as an example, if you would listen to the average Christian radio station, and I'm not picking on ours locally any more so than any you'd find in the nation, listen to a station that purports to be Christian radio or a Christian television station. Now, this isn't a scientific estimate, but I would say that you would find something like 40, maybe 50% of the programming would have some kind of fairly solid biblical grounding, and your soul might be satisfied and and helped and directed a right way by listening to that. I'm not going to stick by that percentage exactly. But another percentage just as big as that, 40 to 50 percent, you would find is programming with sort of a light sprinkling. It's kind of like, you know, when you put sprinkles on an ice cream cone, a sprinkling of Bible on it. But the substance of it really isn't very biblical. It's mostly about practical living lessons or your finances or maybe even something that's more on the lines of shallow emotionalism or entertainment. But then there's always that 10% or so, and it's there in Christian media all over the place today that you really have to watch out for, because interpretations of the Bible are glibly given that are totally out of concert with biblical orthodoxy and the historic faith of the Scriptures. They're one person's slanted view or some minority splinter opinion. And even in Christian media, evangelical Christian media, there are voices you have to be careful of. There are sinkholes of deception where souls can drop in and never be seen again. Jesus, in Matthew 7, ends the Sermon on the Mount on a note of very sharp warning. And the people who listened to him walked away from this sermon. We read their reaction here. Remember, it started out in chapter 5 saying he was speaking to the disciples, but obviously there was a crowd around, and you almost feel the fact that people had sort of edged in closer and closer as, as he was teaching, drinking in what he was saying. And now, at the end, we read, they went away amazed. We never heard anything like this before. Where does this authority come from? It's so different from anything we ever heard. Their ears were tingling. They weren't sure where his doctrine came from, but they knew that it was both fascinating and deeply convicting and convincing. Well, here and in many places, the New Testament warns the people of God to differentiate between a true gospel and a false one. Now, the difference is not merely based on the speaker's personality or charisma. Jesus probably would have been said to have a lot of charisma. 
I've met a handful of individuals in my life about whom I'll come and maybe tell my wife after I meet I said, boy, I met the most amazing person. What giftedness, what a memory, what articulation, you know, what a powerful mind. And you see in this person a strength of personality or speaking ability or something like that. Well, that isn't all it was about Jesus. That was there. But you have to go beneath personality or gifts or charisma to find a standard for the true version of God's gospel of grace. And that's what we want to try to consider here today. We certainly live in a day that was described in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul said there'd be a day when people would be like, quote, infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of men. Theology by fad. That's what we largely have today. Just go and examine the so-called religion or spirituality section of any large bookstore. And you'll see how the trends move through and then are gone. Millions of people don't know what the Bible actually says. They've never been in a church with sound scriptural teaching. And so they, they're actually weak. They're like infants who can naively accept spiritual words from someone who really might have a very deceptive purpose, or at least not a biblical purpose. In many cases, their purpose may be simply to sell books. And to sell books, you know, you've got to be a little new. You've got to be a little controversial. You've, you've got to say something that everybody hasn't said before. Their goal might be to lead a movement or to start a new denomination or maybe something much more nefarious than any of those. Well, first of all, today, as we try to discern the false from the true, Matthew seven fifteen to 20 speaks about true guides versus false guides. And Jesus said, watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are like ferocious wolves. Paul said the same thing in Acts 20 when he was saying farewell to the elders of Ephesus. And he said, I'm going to go. You won't have my influence as a leader anymore. And let me tell you something you can count on. After I go, people are going to come in among you from your own midst who will be like wolves. And they will tear you apart if you let them. A number of years ago, I gave my wife a necklace that was just a simple gold chain with one bright stone suspended from it. And if you would look at this, you would have said, oh, boy, we won't vote this pastor a pay raise because it looks like it's about a one and a half carat diamond. It's pretty good size. Well, in fact, it was bought on a pastor's salary, and it wasn't a diamond. It was the man-made version that they call the cubic zirconium, which only costs a small trifle compared to a real diamond of similar size. The Scripture tells us that there are people speaking supposedly for God who are like that. 2 Corinthians 11.13 has Paul warn the early church against what he calls false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as angels of light. In other words, they look exactly like any other messenger from God. And the name of God is on their lips, and the name of Jesus, and maybe the Holy Spirit, and 
a lot of things that sound exactly like they should be saying what you want them to say. They certainly don't come to you and represent themselves as wolves. They don't bear their fangs or get their claws out and say, I'm here to rip you apart or, and destroy you and deceive you. You'll never hear that. So you have to hear with discernment. Second Peter chapter 2 is a difficult chapter. I remember preaching through those letters of Peter. I think it was about 2000 or 1999. We went through those those letters, and you come to Second Peter 2, and it's the toughest chapter in those two wonderful letters because it's a totally a denunciation in the strongest possible terms. Peter absolutely denounces false leaders of the people and false teachers in language that's it's really hard to hear. These men, he said, blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They act like brute beasts, creatures of instinct. They are springs with no water in them. Now, there's maybe a little element of being able to forgive them there when Peter says they blaspheme in matters they don't understand. You say, well, maybe they're just people that are in over their heads and they should be forgiven for their ignorance. But the problem is that You shouldn't be somebody purporting to teach God's Word and getting into matters that you know are over your head and making declarative statements about them. That's a dangerous thing to do. And so they're not, they don't have an excuse. And along these lines, 1 John 4, 1 says, Brothers, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus said the problem was wolves dressed like sheep. I've always thought we should take the 20th or 21st century analogy of a little phrase we use, you know, not the skin of a sheep exactly in the literal sense, but what do we call an academic degree, or at least I used to hear it called, a sheepskin. And that's one of the problems today. People can go out with a sheepskin, a master's degree, a Ph.D., Oh my, I studied at Edinburgh. I studied at Oxford. I studied at Harvard. I studied at Duke. And then they write their books and people look at the back. You know, you check it out. You say, who's this guy? Oh, oh, he has his doctorate from Harvard. This guy must be a knowledgeable person. And you take these accreditations and say, well, if this person is saying that, for example, the accepted 66 books of the Holy Bible are are really not the whole collection, and there was a conspiracy long ago, and people got together and said, we're going to put our books in and leave those books out, and the Bible you've got isn't really a trustworthy Bible. You ought to read this new part that I've found that I want to tell you about. Why, he's a doctorate from Harvard. Now, I'm not speaking against higher education here. I believe in it very firmly. But academic letters after a name does not equate into spiritual wisdom all the time. A doctorate is a difficult thing to earn, and yet there are many spiritual fools who have one. Believe me. In our day, we've got an attack on the Bible that is in some ways new. Nothing's ever really new, but it's new at least in the last 50 years. 
It's a new message that's it's not a frontal attack. It's a sort of come-in-the-side-door attack that says, oh, the Bible? Well, you know, it's just not as complete as you thought it was. You need to think about all the other parts that, that are, were strewn over the landscape of history. Well, all those other parts are not there for very good reasons. The very finest minds of the apostles and the church fathers and many other people have examined these things and long ago dealt with them. But along comes somebody new and says, aha, did you ever think about this? In Jeremiah 23, the ancient prophet said that he was talking about false prophets. And from the Lord, he said, these are people who speak with visions in their own minds, from their own minds. But a true prophet stands in the counsel of the Lord, hears his word, and speaks from the mouth of the Lord. Well, maybe you say, how can I know? Who am I? I haven't been to Oxford. I haven't been to Harvard. I have not gone to seminary. I don't know Hebrew and Greek. How can I know? If you're telling me they can be very convincing, and it takes a jeweler to tell cubic zirconia from a real diamond, how can I know? Well, Jesus proposes one very profound test here that you can use. And that is, you examine the life of the person. Now, granted, that's difficult if you're talking about an author from a far-off place who you can't personally meet. But you can tell a lot about a person from the tone of their writing, from the way they deal with other people, the way they deal with controversy. And as you examine the life of any teacher or preacher or writer, and not just that, but the lives of people they influence, you begin to see patterns. What what is the character like here? How are these people? What are they like in terms of the fruit that the Bible talks about, that transformational fruit that the gospel brings about in the life of a Christian? Yes, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that what this person's life looks like? Or has their message influenced rather a life of pride and arrogance and criticism and sarcasm and attacks on people and manipulation? You can tell over time. Over time, in fact, biblical doctrine will always tend to reproduce some form of godly living in the life of the messenger and those who really hear him and follow his message. Our lives are going to display some fruit that shows that Christ the gardener has been at work planting, cultivating, and pruning with his kind of fruit growing if he's the one whose message we are featuring. And either that fruit is visible in some unmistakable way in his messengers or it's conspicuously absent. Watch for it. Watch for the life of the messenger and the lives of those who are most influenced by him. There should be fruit of Christ-likeness. Now, in the second place, our text here in Matthew 7 goes on, verses 21 to 23, with something that's a little shocking and startling as it says that even among those who claim the name of Jesus, there can be true faith and false faith. Evidently, it's possible to call Jesus Lord in some way, and yet not possess that genuine faith that saves and sanctifies a person for eternity. In fact, the text says 
such a person could even be involved and, and later say, Lord, why, why, Lord, I went out and worked miracles in your name. I healed the sick in your name. I preached and revivals broke out in your name. And you think of somebody like Judas who, who could say that. He was part of all those things, and there have been lesser versions of him in the church since. And yet at the final day of accounting, Christ himself, who will be the final judge, will say, I'm sorry, Depart from me. I've never known you. You've never been one of mine. Well, maybe this is very disconcerting to you. Maybe you say, I, I, good grief. Could this be me? Could I be someone who's just been fooling myself? Well, let me try to get at how we can know true faith from false faith. Think of a text like 1 John 4, 2, where we read, Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. There's a fairly simple test there. The, the text, John, the author, is saying in that first epistle of his that you have to believe not just that Christ is the, the cosmic Christ, the great creator, the preexistent son, the word who was from the beginning, but that that same being came into history, was incarnated, as we say, enfleshed, And that he actually was the baby, born of a virgin, the man who grew up with a carpenter's mallet in his hand, the man who went to a Roman cross, died a bloody death, and rose gloriously from the dead. Now, you see, the problem is there are people who say, I believe in Christ, but it's a Christ of their invention. It's an abstract Christ, a Christ of idea. They might say, well, the Christ spirit in all of humanity. Hmm, that sounds very noble. What does it mean? The Scripture says you've got to believe that Jesus Christ, this preexistent Son of God, has come in the flesh and that He is of God. You need a historically grounded faith. You see, there are demons who believe in some manner that Jesus is the Christ. We read consistently in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark, has all these confrontations between Jesus and demons. And you know how they pull back or they go, oh, keep away from me, Jesus of Nazareth. We know who you are. Well, in one sense, they did know who he was. But they never bowed down to him and called him Lord or humbled their lives and said, Lord, I'm a sinful demon. Save me. By the sake of your blood and your atonement and your resurrection, they never knew him that way. And so they never knew him at all in the way that counts. Oh, you see, the major heresies of the early church were all controversies over who is Christ. Is he all God, all man, half God, half man, both God and man? And the councils of places like Nicaea and all these other great epic events in the first 300 years of the church were getting the balance of Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh being of God. They were getting the balance right. But you have people today who are all out of balance. You know, they'll think of Christ as sort of the life force in nature or Christ who's not much different than what some people call mother nature. It's not nice to fool mother nature. You know, remember that one? And that's about where most people think Christ is. Well, no, the Scripture says you must believe in this historic Christ, the Son who came to be a real human being, to die our death as our substitute, to take on Him the wrath of God and then rise in victory. 
You see, in the case of true and saving faith, it's not simply a matter of some decision made a long time ago. Now, it's important to make a definite decision for Christ. I remember the day. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a 50th birthday. This sounds real good. I'm going to have a 50th birthday this year. Haha, <laughs> some of you know I'm a fair number of years older than 50. But I am going to have my 50th birthday in Christ in this year, 50 years from the day when I was eight years old and consciously trusted Christ. That was a real thing. The Holy Spirit was working in me. But let me tell you, I don't just look back and say, hallelujah, 50 years ago this happened and done with. What I count as faith is what others might call real long-term fidelity, clinging to Christ over the long haul of life, passionately bowing before him all my life, trusting in him every day from that day till now. You see, that's when we know biblical faith. Not just that we can look back at a calendar event and say, I accepted the Lord. But say, now, right now, I know whom I have believed, and I know that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him against that final day. I'm trusting him now. And in all the ups and downs between the first time and today, it is for me what one person has called a long obedience in the same direction. Fidelity to Christ. That's what true faith looks like. Well, then finally, we end this chapter with this image of two houses. You see all the pairs we've had here. False prophet and true. Tree with bad fruit. Tree with good fruit. False faith and true faith. Now, two houses. Looking identical. But one is going to last and the other one isn't. So there's a true security versus a false security. Because one house is built on a bedrock base and the other one is on sand. How do you show the difference? Well, they might stand there together for years and not look any different. But what's going to happen inevitably sometime, a storm is going to come. And it's the storm that will reveal what's going to happen. John Calvin said, true Christianity is never distinguished from its counterfeit until it comes to a day of trial. And so Jesus speaks about these two houses and the the well-founded one on the rock. He says the rains came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had a rock foundation. Now he has an ultimate calamity in mind here. The calamity of the final judgment of God will be what tests the houses. But it may very well be too that there are calamities in your life. The calamity of cancer, the calamity of a tragic accident, the death of your spouse, the unraveling of your marriage. There are a lot of ways that storms come. And they show what you're founded on. And whether your house is just going to be swept away or not. But if even if you're so fortunate as to get through this life without such a calamity, the calamity will be beyond this life when the eternal God looks to see what your foundation is. Now, Jesus says here in verse 26, the difference between the, the house that stands and the one that doesn't is we're talking about people, of course, not architectural buildings. It's the person who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In other words, the word of God lives. It's the living pulse of that life. You don't just admire it and say, oh, good old Jesus, what a wonderful teacher he was. Boy, you know, he's, Confucius is just a notch below him. And, oh boy, my favorite philosopher is just a couple notches below Jesus. No, 
you're saying this man, in what he says, has the ring of truth from God on high about, about him. You see how the sermon ends here? The sermon was over. The last word was actually sort of a depressing word about a house falling with a crash. And the people went out and looked at each other and said, did you ever hear anything like that before? Where does he get these things from? What powerful speech. That, he's not like our teachers who quibble over, you know, where to put the dot on the eye of the law. Why, this is something original and powerful, and we've never heard anything like it. In other words, the focus ended not on the sermon, but on the preacher and the ring of divine truth in his word. So you see, the, the difference then is whether you stake yourself and put your foundation t- entirely upon this one, Jesus, the Son of God, who is the shelter from the storm. He is the foundation beneath every lasting spiritual house. And he went to a Roman cross, and we think Hurricane Katrina was the worst thing this country's ever seen. In spiritual equivalence, a hundred Hurricane Katrinas crashed upon the innocent head of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. The calamitous storm came, and it landed on him. And therefore, the gospel is that which tells us, hey, for you, the storm can already be over with. If indeed you are founded on him, the storm has already come. And that final storm of God's judgment throne is going to be nothing for you. Because God will look upon you and say, you've already withstood the storm. You are in the shelter of my son. And you have heard his son speak and you've said, This isn't just the words of a good prophet or a nice philosophy or a new ritual or a new religion with some rules that I think I can handle. Here is the voice of God saying, thus says the Lord. I'll be founded on this or nothing. Here is the one upon whom I cast my every hope. And in fact, I find out that I run to him and I cling to him and I realize he's actually the ultimate judge who's going to dispense that wrath of God. But I don't have to be afraid of him because he gave his life for me. And under his shelter, the storm can't touch me. You remember the Old Testament prophet that spoke about the coming day of the Lord and he made it sound pretty awful. And he said, who shall be able to stand When he appears, something awful's coming. Who will be able to stand? Well, Christian men and women, you can stand. You do stand if you've planted yourself upon the bedrock of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear the judgment of God's wrath because the one who is going to dispense it is already, in a sense, your landlord if you live in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid in Christ Jesus. Here's where you'll find what's true. The man from God with the ring of truth about him. The God-man, preexistent before all eternity, yet born into a stable in this world. Because of him, 
we can boldly sing, On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let your choice be fixed on him. And Father, we thank you for this marvelous sermon your son brought so long ago. We could go and explore it all over again and learn more. But we thank you, Father, that above all the words of the text itself, it was Christ who stood out at the end. We ask, our God, that our lives might be those that don't simply make a simplistic decision for him once upon a time and then depart from the matter. Give us lives of fidelity, well-founded lives that stand because of the strength of Christ. Ground us in your word. Teach it to us that the false and the counterfeit might be so obvious that we would run away from it. We thank you that you've promised to do this for those who look to you in faith. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.